Chapter number 13, those of you that know your Bible, you're going to know that I'm not going to be talking about David tonight. I was planning on, when I left this morning, uh, dealing with David again tonight, but the Lord sort of sent us a different direction. 2 Kings 13, I'm not going to apologize for that. I believe it's the message of the hour. I want to be a help and encouragement and a blessing to somebody. And a Lord willing, Wednesday night, we'll be back in the study of the life of David. Again, I hope it's been an encouragement. hope it's been a help. You can spend a lot of time on the study of David. But the man we're going to look at tonight is a man by the name of Elisha. I preached on him many, many, many times. And tonight, this is where the Lord has centered our heart. Again, one of my heroes, Elisha, was the one that, that came after Elijah. Elisha is the one that asked for the double portion of, of Elijah's spirit to be upon him. I believe he got it, Brother Wayne. And outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, nobody else performed more miracles than Elisha. Now, nobody performed as many as the Lord Jesus, but Elisha was the tool that God used to perform miracles. And nobody else recorded in, in the Scripture had more miracles than Elisha. And I appreciate his ministry. I appreciate how God used him. And you know, God even used Elisha after he died. He sure did. And we're going to look at that account tonight with the help of the Lord. 2 Kings chapter number 13. If you would tonight, if you're able to, if you would stand with us. Now, honor reverence to the reading of the Word of God. If you're unable to stand, you just remain seated where you are. 2 Kings 13. I want to begin reading in verse number 14. And basically the context of this is Elisha is coming to the end of his life. And the Bible said, 2 Kings 13 and verse 14. Now Elisha was fallen sick of his sickness whereof he died. And Joash, the king of Israel, came down unto him and wept over his face and said, O my father, my father, the chariot of Israel, and the horsemen thereof. And Elisha said unto him, Take bow and arrows. And he took unto him bow and arrows. And he said to the king of Israel, Put thine hand upon the bow. And he put his hand upon it. And Elisha put his hands upon the king's hands. And he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot, and he said, The heir of the Lord's deliverance, and the heir of deliverance from Syria, for thou shalt smite the Syrians in Apec, till thou have consumed them. Now basically, what is going on here, Joash is the king of Israel, and this is dealing with the northern tribe. The Syrians have basically decimated the armies, and there's not much left. Uh, the Bible refers to them as, as the dust of a threshing floor because the army has been beaten so much by the Syrians. And here is Elisha, a mighty warrior of God through the years, and, and the king in, in all of his faults and failures. Listen, you'll read the account of him and his father. They both did which, that which was evil in the earlier verses that we didn't even read here in chapter number 13. But he had enough sense to know and to recognize that there was some power in a man named Elisha, and he knew he's getting ready to die, so he comes down and tries to get some help. So Elisha gives him this object lesson by shooting this window out of the uh, or this arrow out the window, and it gives him confirmation that Israel is going to overtake Syria. Notice as we go on and read in verse 18. And he said, Take the arrows, and he took them, and he said unto the king of Israel, Smite upon the ground. And he smote thrice and stayed. In other words, now picture with me. Elisha gives the arrows unto the king Joash. And he said, you smite the arrows. And he did it once, twice, three times. And he stayed and he stopped. 
He only did it three times. And notice what Elisha, the man of God, said unto him, verse 19. And the man of God was wroth with him and said, Thou shouldest have smitten five or six times. Thou hadest, uh, then hadst thou smitten Syria till thou hast consumed it, whereas now thou shalt smite Syria but thrice. I mean, basically... It was in his hands, Brother Kevin. If he had kept on hitting the ground, it would have consumed and that had defeated Syria completely. But he only did it three times, so he's given three times victory that would be coming in the future. Then notice verse number 20. And Elisha died. And boy, there's a good point right there. That's something we all going to have in common with Elisha. Bible still said in Hebrews 9, 27, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse number 2 said, There's a time to be born, and there's a time to die. We're going to leave out of here one day. And Elisha, this great warrior of the faith, the Bible said Elisha died, and they buried him. And the bands of the Moabites invaded the land at the coming in of the year. It came to pass, as they were burying a man, that, behold, they spied a band of men. And they cast the man into the sepulcher of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. Now let's pray, Father. We bow in God in your presence, Lord, again tonight. Thank you, Lord, for the good word of God. I thank you, Lord, for these historical books in the Scripture. Lord, it's inspired, infallible, and without error. God, I'm glad there's some application that we can glean some truths from. And, Lord, I ask God you'd help this feeble preacher now for the next few minutes to decrease, that Jesus may be increased and lifted up. Lord, if there's one listening tonight, never been saved, not prepared for eternity, oh, God, may tonight be the night of salvation. I pray for the child of God that walked in here just needing some encouragement, needing something from another world. God, we want you to have the preeminence right now. I pray that all the will of God be done. We're going to give you thanks. We're going to give you praise for what you do. We ask these things in Jesus' name. All God's people said, Amen. Well, thank you for standing tonight. We've read this out of 2 Kings, chapter number 13. There's a lot that I'd love to go back and tell you, but I just flip back maybe a page. Look at the first couple verses of chapter number 13. In reference here to um, in verse number 1, the Bible said of chapter 13, In the three and twentieth year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and reigned seventeen years. But notice verse number 2, And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. So here's a king to the north, that basically his testimony is, He's done that which is evil in the sight of the Lord. Then notice verse number 10. In the thirty and seventh year of Joash, king of Judah, began Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, to reign over Israel and Samaria, and reigned sixteen years. But look at verse 11. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Boy, the apple didn't fall far from the tree, just as his daddy did. The son that is reigned. These are the leaders over Israel at the time. And both of them can be summed up this way, Brother Brandon. They did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Man, I don't want that testimony to be about me. I don't want that testimony to be about you. But these two men had this type of testimony that they'd done that which was evil. We just read this text here. He had enough sense beginning in verse number 4. 
14, evidently he knew that Elisha, the man of God, is getting ready to pass off of the scene on planet earth. And he needed some help. He needed some direction. So he goes down to where Elisha is because he's facing an insurmountable army in the Syrians. I've already said the Bible likens the armies of Israel to the dust of the threshing floor. After the, the wheat has been threshed, only thing there is left is dust that's blown away. And he said, man, that's what our army looks like. And they needed some help from another world. And they came to the right one. And Elisha gives this object lesson with his bow and the arrows, the one shot out going out the window toward that direction. Let's them know that they were going to overcome them there in Apex. And then the ball was placed in Joash's corner. He smote the ground. The more times he'd have smote it, he could have totally consumed the Syrians. But he only hit it three times. As a result of that, he was going to get three victories. But what interests me tonight is found in verse number 20. And it's not real popular, first part, and Elisha died. We don't like to hear about dying, but it's a fact, it's a reality. We're going to leave out here one day, First Samuel chapter 20, verse number 3. As, Saul, as David was running from Saul for his life, David made this statement. First Samuel 20, verse number 3, there's but one step between me and death. And we're one step. From going out into eternity. One breath. One heartbeat. One of these days these lungs are going to take that last breath. One of these days this heart's going to beat for the last time. And we're going to leave out here. There's no purgatory. There's no in between. There's one or two destinations people will go. There's a heaven to gain. But yes sir and yes ma'am there is a hell to shun. Those that reject the free pardon and forgiveness of sin that is found in Jesus Christ. But notice Elisha died. And they buried him just as it was traditional for the Israelites. They didn't, uh, they didn't do any of the embalming. What they did, they would wash the bodies and they would wrap them in linen clothes. And of course they would prepare the spices. And then they would put them uh, in this particular tomb. And evidently he had been lowered down into it as we read on. But notice the last part of verse 20 says something interesting. It said, And the bands of the Moabites invaded the land at the coming end of the year. And these Moabites were, were thieves that would come in and would raid the land and, and steal the crops and different things. So they come in, and, and the Israelites were well aware of that. If you remember the Moab, that, that, that Moab and Ammon both came from that incestuous relationship of Lot and his two daughters, and they became the enemies of God down through the ages where the Moabites have come in at that time of the year. And we understand, look at verse 21. And it came to pass as they were burying a man. Now this is not, this is some time after Elisha's died. He's been placed in that tomb, in that, in, in, wherever, in the ground evidently. Because as we read on, it came to pass as some, they were burying a man. That behold, they spied a band of men. Who is these band of men? Well, it's the Moabites. The Moabites have come in to raid the land. Now that's important. You've got this funeral procession. They're carrying a man out, and they're just so happened coming by the tomb of Elisha. And Elisha's been there for a while because this particular time, there's no flesh on his, on his bones going to the Word of God because the Bible didn't say he touched his flesh. When that man touched his bones, he revived. So evidently, he had been there for some time. So get the picture of this funeral procession. They've got a man that they're carrying out unto the cemetery. They get right there to Elisha's uh, tomb, and they see a band of men. That's the Moabites coming in that would have robbed them and would have taken things from them. Notice what happened. The Bible said, and they cast the man into the sepulcher of Elisha. Now, 
It's almost comical if you think about it. Here they are. I can just see them being real sincere, Brother Doby. They're all walking out. I don't know. They might have been six. You know, six is a good pallbearer number. Here they are. They're walking out through there, Brother Brandon. And they, they know the Moabites come in this time of year. And they spot them and they see them over here. And they didn't think, well, I don't think it took them long to figure out what they was going to do. They're right there by the, the tomb of Elisha. Man, they chucked him on in there. Now, that may not be comical to you, but I, can just, I try to visualize things in the Scripture. Here's these men, and, and, and man, they were reactionary. They didn't think about it. They seen those men. Man, what were we going to do? They chucked him into. But God had a plan in all that, by the way. For the Bible goes on to say, And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up. On his feet. I've already said there's no outside of the Lord Jesus now. Nobody else in recorded scripture had more miracles than Elisha did. And Elisha has been dead to the point where there's no flesh on his bones. His bones is the only thing that is left. And when this man that was dead was cast into there, when he made contact with the bones of Elisha, the Bible said he revived. What does that mean in Yakin County English? He came back to life, man. Amen. Somebody said, well, and these liberals, they'll say, well, he really wasn't dead, and he got through in there, and it was cool, and it was damp, and he revived, no, son, he was graveyard dead. He was dead, and when he touched the bones of Elisha, he revived, and he came back to life. And all this, I believe, was symbolic to the king of Israel to let him know that the words of Elisha, although Elisha was dead and gone, that his words at Syria would be defeated. Evidently, that you know them boys that chucked him in there, and then they see him come out, no doubt, and the Moabites, they had a story to tell when they went back to town, and it obviously got back to the king of Israel. But I won't preach tonight for just a few minutes, a real simple bean and tater message on the miracle at the grave. That's a exactly what happened here in chapter number 13. There was a miracle that took place there at the grave. Numerous times we, we look at, at snapshots in the Old Testament, which was a, a picture in the Old Testament of the Lord Jesus and His sacrifice. Well, when I think about this this passage here, and I understand the context. This was a literal event where this man was raised to life. But there's a great application even to the church today in the age in which we are living in way of typology and application when it comes to man's redemption. There's a great picture of what took place right here in 2 Kings 13, how it relates to what happens when a lost sinner gets gloriously saved by the marvelous grace of God. God. Thank God for redemption that somebody paid our price. Somebody made a difference in our life. And this old guy owed everything he had unto Elisha when he touched those bones. And listen, you and I owe everything to Jesus. He's the one uh, that took not just part of our sin, but all of our sin on a rugged cross many years ago. We ought we not better never, never, never get too far away from that fundamental principle. That fundamental fact you see tonight. I 
I didn't just come in here to see y'all, although I love to see y'all. I didn't just come in here tonight just so I could sing with a choir or to sing with a congregation. I didn't come tonight just to preach a message. I came, I want to see Jesus high and lifted up. I want to worship Him. I want to honor Him. I want to glorify Him. You see, it ain't about me. And I hate to burst your bubble. It ain't about you either. But it's about the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I'm talking about the line of the tribe of Judah, the one that made the ultimate sacrifice that I get to go to heaven one day. Friend, he's worthy to be worshipped. Tonight, you think about redemption. There's a great lesson, application when it comes concerning the redemption of lost sinners. You can see the need of redemption. When they brought this fellow to the tomb, he was dead. Dead. No life was in him at all. And that's a picture of the individual prior to getting saved. Ephesians chapter number 2 and verse number 1, the Bible said, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. And you see today, this old guy, as he's carried down and, uh, it, with the funeral procession, he, he's lifeless, he's hopeless, he's even forsaken by his friends. They've cast him in there out of fear. And he, there's no hope for him at all. And there was a great need of redemption. That's what I was prior to getting gloriously saved. The day that I called on the name of the Lord, as I came that hour, I was a dead sinner. But guess what? He quickened me. What's that mean? That means he made me alive. And there's the need of redemption. Why do we? And Brother Patton, he could testify tonight and many others that why in the world do you share the gospel with people? Because there's people that are going to a burning, literal hell and there's a need for redemption. They're not going to get to heaven by the good works or the good deeds or their baptism or the church membership or whatever they do. It's going to be Jesus or it's going to be nothing. And friend, the need of redemption is crystal clear. Why do we make much of Jesus? Because it's about Jesus. If I come to try to lift up myself or to lift up some person or some individual, man, that's all in vain. But if you lift up Jesus, he's still the one. All the Bible's still crystal clear. In Acts chapter 4 and verse number 12, it said neither is there salvation in any other. For there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. But there is a need for redemption. As that man was cast into that tomb, he was dead. That's a picture of us prior to salvation. There's the need of redemption. There's also the necessity of redemption. There's something necessary that has to take place. Now, don't miss this. Brother Harold, that man would have never raised a new life if Elisha, Elisha hadn't died. Elisha was dead. And the Bible said when this dead man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived, stood up on his feet. What's the application of that part? Well, there's a, the necessity of redemption is this. It was Elisha's life for that man's life. The lady's saying that his life for mine, and I know... Uh, Sister Savannah sort of draws up because I know that, that stretches them out. That is a high. But his life, one of the most biblical songs probably ever been written. His life for mine. The scripture for that would be found in 2 Corinthians 5 verse number 21. For he hath made him 
to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. You see, no cross, no sacrifice means no salvation for Him. A lot of folks say, well, uh, this, this, and, and listen, a few years ago, this is even back in the 50s and 60s and 70s, some of the, some of the churches decided, you know what we need to do? Uh, this, this, this blood massacre religion, man, we, we need to take some of that out of the songbooks, and a lot of them did. A lot of these new perversions of the Bible do the very same thing. Taking away the blood of Christ, friend. If you if you take the blood of Christ out of Scripture, man, that monkeys up the whole doctrine of the Bible. Listen, we're not justified by works. We're justified by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the necessity of redemption. So get it. The need of redemption is this. This man was dead, and he's Threw in, and now the necessity is somebody had to die in order for him to live. And I'm glad to report to you tonight that Jesus died so you and I can live. There's a need of redemption. There's a necessity of redemption. But I want you to notice the nature of redemption. Watch exactly. And you got to go back to verse 20 to catch this now. The Bible said, Elisha died, and they buried him. And the bands of the Moabites invaded the land in the coming in of the year. So here's these, the enemies of the Israelites. They're out there. And then verse 21, it came to pass as they were burying a man, that behold, they spied a band of men, and they cast a man into the sepulcher of Elisha. So here, he, 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 he comes down, he's got this need, and the necessity, Elisha has taken his place, and he's been given life. But you know what the first thing he faces, Brother Brandon, when he's restored, is the enemy. Yeah, man. That band of men, you know, that the, the, the pallbearer saw... When he revived the life, what's the first thing he see? That band of men. That's the nature of redemption. What's that? How does that apply to me? Preach well. Listen, just because you get saved, that don't mean you get to sit back and say, Whoo, I got it made now. The battle just begins, friend. To keep that testimony, to stay clean and clear. Again, temptation is not sin, but when we yield to that temptation, it becomes sin. It's a constant battle. It's a constant struggle. It might be worry. It might be stress. It might be, it might be some kind of specific sin, but there's going to be things that you're going to deal with, and you're going to face the enemy. And we see that's exactly what he is facing. I, I thought about this, and, and God's people have always faced persecution. Now, we in America, we really don't know much about persecution. Not our generation. I mean, really. I mean, we've got the freedom to do pretty much what we want to, the freedom to worship. It's not like this in other parts of the world. Some folks have to go underground to preach the gospel, to share their faith. And we don't have much persecution here. Now, as the Lord tarries long, I don't know what we'll face in the coming days uh, here even in America. But God's people have always faced some persecution along the way. And in Galatians chapter number 4 and the context of that is talking about Ishmael, which, it, which is a picture of, uh, of a fleshly decision. And then you've got Isaac, which was a spiritual decision. There was a contrast between the two. And listen to what the Bible said. In Galatians chapter 4 and verse 29, But is then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit? Even so it is now. Why does that apply to me, preacher? Well, when you get saved, thank God your sins are forgiven. But you're going to face some persecution. And as a matter of fact, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 12 said, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And I said, well, I ain't, I ain't suffering no persecution. We might not be living a godly life. 
A lot of folks don't understand why you do what you do as a believer. You read your Bible, you go to church, you, you pray, you do this, you do that. Well, sure we do. They don't get it. They don't understand it. Why? Because they're still dead in trespasses and sins. But thank God, you and I that are saved, but I'm just telling you the nature of redemption. That's why Paul put it in Ephesians 6 into the church in Ephesus. Ephesians 6 to put on the whole armor of God. You got to have your lawns girded about with truth. And the lawns, what holds everything together? You better be. And that's one of the reasons we come to church, not only to worship the Lord, but this is a place of instruction where we can get some help from another world. In other words, to the child of God, it'll charge up our batteries, our spiritual batteries, to go back out into the world because the world does enough beating us down, rest assured. Thank God we we are to preach the gospel. This is a place where you can come to Christ. But for the church, it is a place of instruction as we leave here We ought to be challenged and changed to live a life that's pleasing unto the Lord. But you better rest assured the nature of redemption is this. You're going to face some persecution along the way. This old guy, the first thing he's seen when he's restored to life, Brother Howell, he sees the enemies of God and the enemies of Israel. So you see the need of redemption. This man was dead. See the necessity of redemption. In order for him to live, Elisha had to die. In other words, Elisha took his place. And that's exactly what Jesus did for you and I. Then the nature of redemption is this. As soon as he's restored to life, the first thing he sees is the, the enemies of God. But notice this fourth and final thing here tonight. We see the need, the necessity, the nature. But also we'd call this the newness of redemption. Look at verse number 21 again. And it came to pass as they were burying a man, that behold, they spied a band of men, and they cast the man into the sepulcher of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived, watch this now, and stood up on his feet. That's the newness of redemption. He couldn't do that just a few minutes before. Well, what happened, preacher? I'll tell you what happened. He got changed. 2 Corinthians 5.12 or 5.17, still in the Bible. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a what? A new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Will we be sinless after we get saved? Absolutely not. But we ought to sin less than we did prior to salvation, our profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm glad the Lord can change your life. He'll change that attitude, man. If you got an old sour attitude, I'm glad the Lord can change that. If you got bitterness, I'm glad He can take that away. You got anger issues, you got a sin problem. I'm telling you, the Son, S O N, the Lord Jesus Christ, can take it all away. Why? Because there's the newness. Of redemption. I think about Matthew 7, 16. Jesus said, you shall know them by their fruits. Our words, our actions, our habits, our behavior. Evidence will testify either for or against us that we are children of God. I'd ask you this, Sister Savannah's coming. I'd ask you this tonight. And I've, I've said this before, but it's worth hitting again. If... If you were, and you got to put yourself, I ain't talking to your neighbor, I'm talking to everybody in here. If we were to be put on trial for being a child of God, would there be enough evidence to convict us? Now let that sink in. If we were to be put on trial for being a child of God, would there be enough evidence to convict us? And what if we took maybe your spouse, maybe your children, 
maybe your co-workers, maybe those that are closest to you, and they were on the jury. Would they be enough evidence to convict you of being a child of God? How's your words? How's your attitude? How's your actions? How's your behavior? Well, I'll tell you what. I'm glad there's the newness of redemption. And my, how you and I need to make sure that our testimony lines up with our profession of faith. Because here's the thing. Why in the world would somebody want what we got if we ain't no different than they are? That makes sense? But I'm glad the miracle at the grave, there's some applications tonight. There's the need. There's the deadness. There's a necessity. He had to touch the bones of Elisha. Elisha had to die. In other words, Elisha had to be that substitute, had to take his place. And I'm glad the Lord Jesus Christ took my place. I was dead in trespasses and sins, but thank God he took my place. Then we see the nature of redemption when you get saved. Don't mean all your problems gonna gonna go away. Don't mean all the persecution gonna go away. Sometimes it just begins. The first thing he faced was the enemies of Israel and the enemies of God. But there was a newness about this man. Because he could now do what he couldn't do just a few minutes before. The Bible said he stood up on his feet. They towed him, carried him to the tomb, threw him in. But he came out a whole lot different than he went in. I'm glad when you come to Jesus by faith, you'll come out a whole lot different than you went in. Tonight, we're standing all over the house. Hello, friends. This is Brian Poindexter, the pastor of Faith Community Baptist Church, located at 2216 Hennings Road, in East Bend, North Carolina. We're so grateful to have you listening to our CD ministry that's been provided as an outreach of our church. It's our desire and focus at Faith Community Baptist Church to preach and teach the whole counsel of God to a lost and dying world, to equip the saints of God for service, and to encourage the elderly and shut-ins who cannot attend services due to physical ailments. We meet every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. for Sunday school for all ages, and our Sunday school hour is followed by our worship service at 11 a.m. with old-fashioned singing and preaching from the Word of God. We meet back every Sunday night at 6 p.m. for our worship service, and every second Sunday night of each month, we have what's called an eat-and-meet service. After our 6 p.m. service, we gather in the fellowship hall for food and fellowship. On Wednesdays, we meet back at the church for our midweek worship service with choir singing and preaching again from God's holy word. Our ladies prepare a meal each Wednesday prior to our service from 5.30 p.m. to 6.30 p.m. I give you and your family a cordial invitation to be with us at any or all of our service times. Above all, you may be listening today and maybe you've never made a personal commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, that's the greatest decision anyone can ever make in this life. Too many folks prepare for vacation. They prepare for retirement. They seem to prepare for everything, but sad to say, many make no preparations for eternity. The reality is very clear. We all will leave this world someday. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. You must understand that you are guilty before a holy God. Romans 3.23 said, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Prophet Isaiah said in chapter 53 and verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. You must understand that your good words, good works and good deeds will not get you to heaven. 
Isaiah 64 and verse 6 says, But we are all as an unclean thing. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. Ephesians chapter 2, the Bible said, Therefore by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. You must understand that you're loved. I'm thankful that in John 3 and verse 16, it said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 5 and verse 8 declares, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You must understand and realize there's only one way to stand right before God. There's not many ways, there's only one. Jesus said in John 14 and verse number 6, He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, the apostles' message was very simple. There in Acts chapter 4, in verse number 12, they said, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there's none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. You might ask the question, Preacher, how can I be saved? That's what the Philippian jailer asked in Acts chapter 16, verse 30 and 31. He asked Paul and Silas, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved and thy house. Romans 10, 9 said that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. You must ask God to save you. I can't do it. No one can do it for you. Romans 10, 13 said, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you know you're a sinner, and if you're sorry for your sin, and you believe Jesus died for your sins, you simply have to ask him to save you. You might say, Preacher, how can I know for sure God will hear me? But first of all, the Bible tells us that we must be drawn. John 6 and verse 44, Jesus said, No man can come to me except the Father which had sent me. Draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Psalm 51 and verse 17 gives us the attitude we need to have when we come to God. It said there, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. If God draws you by conviction, and if you're sorry for your sin, you repent of them, if you believe Jesus died for your sins, and if you asked Him to save you, then the Bible declares you've been saved. If you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you've been forgiven of all your sin. Romans 8, 1 declares, There is therefore now no condemnation of them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Once a person has been saved, they need to be a part of a fundamental Bible-believing church where they can grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. God calls us out of darkness and commands us to walk in light after we've been saved by His marvelous grace. If we can help you here at Faith Community Baptist Church in any way, feel free to contact us. If you have asked God to save you, please contact us, and we will send you some free literature to help you in your newfound life in Christ. Thank you again for listening to our CD ministry that's been provided by our church here, and may God richly bless you and your family is our prayer.